0: of discipleship here at Urban Village Church. what Paul is building towards. And Paul was really, really smart. If he lived in the 21st century, he'd probably be one of those really cool dudes that everybody loves and that I secretly hate, slash envy, because I just wanted to be more like him. He'd probably be more like uh, Anthony Bourdain. He'd be like a cool chef who travels around the world and meets interesting people and takes shots of who knows what and then talks about how like, his tastes are awesome. Or he'd be like an op ed writer for the New York Times where he'd be exposing truth, um, exposing lies for what they really are, and thus exposing injustice all around the world. And Lord knows I would want to be doing that. Or if Paul lived in the 21st century, maybe he'd be like a Christian podcaster where he sits in a dark room with his gigantic beard and a pint of beer talking to his other yeah theologian, philosopher, friends about stuff I don't really understand. Paul would have dominated Christian culture of today, much like Stephen Colbert dominates a beard or uh, Beyonce dominates everything. <laughs> <laughs> Paul would have been the Beyonce of today. <laughs> uh, so what Paul is doing is actually really smart in his letter It's important to remember that Paul, this dope missionary of the early Christian church, went traveling around planting new churches, starting new places where people could come together to identify as Christians and learn how to do this faith thing together. But then he chooses to write his longest letter, which kind of lays out his whole belief about what God is doing in the world, to one church that he didn't start the one church that he didn't himself plant, but he recognizes that this church was birthed in the heart of the empire, in the Roman capital, that these Christians somehow in this huge city found each other and recognized that they needed to start gathering together and retelling these stories of faith to one another to learn what it means to do church together, to be in community, and what this whole faith journey was So Paul sees within these uh, new Christians something he wants to emulate to be a mutual encouragement for one another. So he begins his letter to the Romans where he lays out uh, greetings, you know, hello, how you doing, this is Paul. He makes statements of purpose and then identifies himself and then he starts to like lay it on really thick. Just in case these people here in this Roman Christian church haven't heard of Paul, the banff of Christian ministry, if you don't know what vamp means, ask your neighbor, because I can't say it from the pulpit, but uh, these people who maybe never met Paul, he wants to introduce who he is, and then he starts to butter them up, saying, I've been praying for you." so much. I know you've been doing such great things, and I always give thanksgiving to God when I think of you, and I hope to come and visit you someday, because I want to see this grassroots startup of a church where we might mutually encourage one another in our faith. Paul sees something in this diligent and determined group of young Christians that he admires. So, he begins his letter. And then, and then this is where he's a related writer. He takes a subtle twist. After giving thanks and talking about mutual encouragement, he then turns to talk about and uses language of sin and unrighteousness versus righteousness. So he lays the groundwork of like buttering them up and then he lays down the gauntlet with sin. And then he asks lots of rhetorical questions and I don't know what you, but I hate rhetorical questions, because usually when people are asking rhetorical questions, they already know the answer, and they're not looking for you that help them identify anything new, and they're just kind of full of themselves. So Paul does this, but actually it's really good, because he's trying to convince them of what his argument is about sin, by saying, doesn't everyone? So uh, rhetorical question, the answer is yes. Paul theorizes about that all human sin. He says they all fall short of the glory of God. That it is only through God's grace, by faith, that one can experience salvation. And that's a lot of big language, right? Big churchy language. Sin and grace and faith and salvation. And they all kind of give me icky feelings inside, usually. Paul does not unpack any of those words with us either, which is Super helpful. But then he moves from that big churchy language into another twist or turn in the letter. And he starts getting a history lesson. This is the part we come to today where Paul starts talking about the story of Abraham. And if you don't remember Abraham, he was this really old guy married to a woman who was there.
1: And that doesn't really
0: narrow down all the characters in the Bible, because there's a lot of really old guys married to women. women. So <laughs> Abraham, is married to Sarah, and they are ancient, like 100 years plus. And Sarah is advanced in age and has never been able to conceive. And we don't know why that is, but we also know that in ancient Near Eastern culture, that was a really terrible thing because there's no way for Abraham and Sarah to extend their lineage, to live through their children and their children's children, to continue to share these stories of faith with anyone. They didn't have children. But this was a way of continuing their, their existence through others. Um, so, they don't have kids. And then, God instructs Abraham and Sarah to wander into the desert. To find a new place to live. Which is also a really difficult situation. Not only not having your own kids was difficult in ancient Near Eastern culture, but to go away from your your family of origin to a new place where you didn't know anybody, you had no connections or ways to make community, uh, is terrifying. I don't Sarah talked about how it's terrifying just making a transition to Chicago. In ancient Near Eastern culture, it was incredibly, uh, it could be incredibly dangerous to go to a new place. But God instructs Abraham and Sarah to go into the desert to find this new place, this new home, and trust that God would be there and they showed up. And so the faith of Abraham and Sarah is that they go. They wandered through the desert where there is wind and dust moving about all the time, so you always lose your way. There was no water along to guide them. And along the way, they would stop at different points and pray, looking, seeking for God, and then realizing God is still in his place. God is still with and they moved through the desert that way until they arrived in Hebron. And then in Hebron, uh, God tells Abraham and Sarah that their descendants will be as many, number, as many stars as there are in the sky, and as many grains of sand that you find in the desert. suddenly begins to swell with life. God had recognized that Abraham and Sarah had faith to follow God into the wilderness, and God was also faithful to them, providing them with a child, Isaac. And then the story goes on, Isaac then um, is given to them, and God asks Abraham to perform a covenant Marking their faith in God as this outward sign of their body, showing their internal feelings about God and their relationship with God. So they practice circumcision, which um, if you don't know what that is, ask your neighbor. And then, uh, then when Isaac is born, Abraham and Sarah circumcise Isaac as a reminder that God was faithful to them and that they have faith in God. Isaac marries Rebecca. Rebecca and Isaac have two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they then, in turn, circumcise Jacob and Esau as this outward sign of an internal relationship they have with God. And then Jacob then has twelve sons who become the founders of the nation of the tribes of Israel. So Paul uses this story, referencing this story, to remind his readers of their Jewish heritage. Um, of Abraham and Sarah, but he also reminds them of God's faithfulness to their foreparents, their foreparents of faith. And then, and then, Paul takes the story and twists it one more time. You might not have noticed this in our reading today, but he takes it and twists it to say that it was nothing about what Paul about what Abraham did. It was nothing that Sarah because like Sarah couldn't be circumcised. Ask your neighbor about that. But. But it was all about an internal faith that they experienced and then embodied. He tells the Christians in Rome that it's not by your actions that you experience grace, but it is by this faith, the internal experience you have with God. And faith is not a one-sided experience. Abraham and Sarah had faith that God would accompany them on their journey and that God would continue to create and liberate and remember them in this new place. But God also had faith in Abraham and Sarah, in their ability to go on this treacherous journey, and their ability to have faith in God in this new place. It is a partnership between God and humans. Because, let's be honest, faith is really complicated, right? That was a rhetorical question. I hate when people ask rhetorical questions, right? So just saying this faith is really complicated. Faith is not just, though, this existential leap that we take when we can't explain away with reason God's grace or the beauty of creation. Faith is more like this partnership we have with God. Faith is the connection that we say we trust in God, and God, in turn, trusts in us. And that partnership, that faith, gives us a sense of power that we didn't have beforehand. Power, power not only to give life to a dead womb, but it's power that we've seen raises the dead to new life. It's power that gives life to a soul that was once dead with sin and doubt and suffering. The partnership of God through faith into existence things that once did not exist so therefore as children of God there's nothing extraordinary we have to do to experience this grace this grace through faith that Paul talks about but let's let's take another time now so we talked about faith now let's talk about grace because grace is another really big concept right it's an informal question. I heard somebody say yeah. uh, Grace. Uh, so our church, Urban Village Church, is a tr- by tradition a Methodist church. And Methodism was founded by John Wesley. And John Wesley, we get the name Methodism because he was very methodical. That's no surprise. And he talked about grace in three different ways. Or Paul told me later, we didn't talk about it this way, but we have pulled these things out and decided this is how we thought about grace. And these are all really complicated languages, complicated words to talk about grace, but it kind of gives us something to deal with or to hold on to when we think about something so big. So, Wesley thought of convenient grace. Provenient grace is a grace that is all around us. It is already in existence, like the air we breathe, and we're just swimming through God's grace every day. And then, there's justifying grace which is another big word just to say that all of a sudden, one day, you woke up, you opened your eyes, and you could see the grace in different places. And you started to notice it all around you. And then there's another type of grace, sanctifying grace. And that is the grace that says, I've seen this grace here, but I also recognize that there are spaces in our world there spaces in my heart where I don't experience God's grace. I know it's there, but I don't see it. And so, sanctifying grace is us being people who go about recognizing God's grace in those spaces by pulling God's grace in where we maybe thought it wasn't before. So, those are three different ways of talking about grace for being in grace sanctifying, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. And those are all happening at the same time, basically. It's not a linear thing, but we are experiencing grace now. We are continually reawakening ourselves to God's grace, and we are constantly looking for God's grace in spaces where we may not have experienced it or seen it before. So, as children who have grace by faith, there's nothing extraordinary we have to do to experience this grace of God. However, our salvation, our understanding of ourselves and of who God is becomes more complete and our faith becomes way more full when we decide to awaken ourselves, awaken ourselves to the presence of God's grace in our lives. And that also means, sometimes, recognizing that in those spaces where we don't see God, that that's where sin exists. And sin is another really complicated word, you know. Sin, Trey talked about this last week, so if you really want to hear about it, you can go listen to the podcast. podcast If you're so mesmerized by this, you can go and to it later too. But but sin typically means missing the mark. But it's also just something that we are caught up in. It's nothing we did as, I mean, sometimes it's we just make bad choices, right? Let, well, we'll say that. But there's also sin within groups of people and institutions that we had no, we had nothing to do about bringing that about. We were just kind of born into this place where it already existed. And we have to get out recognizing that in other spaces. Because I'm sure I, I won't, Say for you, but I know that sin exists for myself in the world when I see um, young black women's bodies torn and thrown about and tossed like (coughs) it's a piece of property. I know that sin exists when I realize that five percent out of youth, youth in the United States are homeless. But did you know that in Chicago, five? 5% 5% of those youth that are homeless, 30 to 40% of them identify as LGBTQ because they were kicked out of a family, because they came out. 30 to 40. That statistic tells me that sin. Something deeply wrong exists. So it's there. So what do we as grace by faith filled people do about it? not an important question, because I don't expect you to have the answer. But I do know there are some things we can do. Rather than getting trapped by the enormity and complexity of sin, there are things that we can do to be battling against it, but also to be living more into our full, grace-filled self and be recognizing the grace that is all around us and calling it out so that it can be more fully recognized by others. Sin, when we open our eyes to sin, when we just say, I admit that it is there, uh, when we admit that there's death and destruction and wrecked relationships and wreckage just filling our world, that's when we acknowledge that God's goodness, God's grace is not fully realized just yet. But when we recognize that, we also hold some power. We have the power to confess that with God's help, we can be about waking other people up, helping other people recognize that God's grace exists and that sin also exists, that there are places where power is being manipulated and tweaked and it is wrong, and we should be calling that out too. So we have to recognize it. That's the first thing we can do. The power and then we have the power. To repent. Repent is another really big churchy word, but just means, and for me, repentance comes with a lot of like baggage from my uh, youth where I felt like I had to repent for like every kind of sneeze or thought somewhere was cute. Uh, but repentance really just means telling the truth. Telling the truth to God. And telling the truth to each other and telling the truth to the powers and principalities that be saying that God God's grace is all around us that sin really exists and is everywhere and somehow I'm kind of caught up in it too and that I want to do something to change so we recognize we repent and then we reorient our lives towards God's grace we say that I recognize that this is going on, and I'm going to be about turning my life around so that I am facing God more. That I'm finding God's grace in those spaces where I didn't see it. That I'm calling out sin for what it is, and that I'm bringing God's grace more fully into this world by hoping other people recognize it. There's power when we, what was it? Recognize, repent, and and reorient. that was what it was. I couldn't remember, but that was just me asking. <laughs> uh, so there's power when we do those things, um, because then we need more about experiencing God's creative and deliberative and remembering faith. When we experience God's faith, we are empowered and emboldened to also be like God and be creative. We find new ways to restore relationships, We find creative ways to repair broken systems, corrupted by violence and destruction, but we also can be creative enough to dismantle all of that destruction and all of those institutions and forces and rebuild something beautiful that looks even more like what God would want. When we experience God's grace through faith, we are empowered and emboldened, also to be liberators. When we awaken ourselves more to God's grace in this world, when we open our eyes and see it, and help other people wake up to it, then we know that there is something holding us back. And we name it for what it is. We recognize it, we call it out, and thus we set people and groups and institutions and even ourselves, we set us free just because we name it for what it is. And then when we experience God's grace through faith, when we awaken ourselves to God's grace, we are also empowered or emboldened to remember relationships. That can be remembering the stories of our four parents of faith, like Abraham and Sarah,
1: but that can also
0: be re-remembering, re-putting things back together, rebuilding a world that looks more like what God wants. So we are about restoring relationships and then drawing people in to experience God's grace, to see it more fully in their lives. So we're going to do that this morning. That's a lot, right? But sometimes it's really nice to have something tangible to say, I did something this morning, and to walk away with that. Because we all contribute to direct relationships between creation, between God, between ourselves and others, and we all have the responsibility to wake up, to open our eyes to that sin, and then to find ways that we can contribute to bringing about justice in our world. We're not called to be paralyzed by the enormity of this task because we can do something as small as what we're about to do in two seconds. But then. We have the responsibility to be about shaking others away. Helping people reorient their senses to see God in the world. It's not, though, about what we do. That's what Paul's talking about when he's bringing up Abraham's faith. It's not about actions. It's not about circumcision, because if it was about circumcision, I wouldn't be in on it. It's about the faith that we hold in our heart grace. It's about the grace we see around us as we swim through it. And it's about the grace of God that we see in small moments throughout the day. So this morning, we're going to, we recognize that sin exists, but we're also going to repent. And that's a really scary thing for some people. So if you don't feel like repenting this morning, you totally don't have to. There's going to be words on the screen and you don't have to say anything. You can just read along. But I invite you to participate for this reason because it's really, really cathartic. It feels so good to name some injustice that's done and how you might be a part of it. But then it's also there's this power in language that by naming it you can then reclaim your own power to say, I have grace from God and I will not be about these other things anymore. I will be moving forward my life So if you stand right now, this is going to be a closing prayer for our message today. And on the screen, this is an ancient form of repentance. I'm going to read the stuff that is in yellow, and then we as a community will all say the words that are written in white. And it's going to go on for maybe two minutes. So just adjust yourself, roll your shoulders back, Take a deep breath, and then get ready to feel God's grace swarming around you. God, accept our repentance for the wrongs that we have done. For our blindness to human need and suffering, and our indifference to injustice and cruelty. Accept, accept our repentance. repentance, God. For all the false judgments, for uncharitable thoughts towards our neighbor, and for our prejudice and contempt towards those who differ from us, except, except our, our repentance God, God. For our waste and pollution of your creation and our lack of concern for those who will come after us, Accept our, our repentance God. God. Restore us, gracious God, and let your anger depart from us. May your be hear us, us. Be for your mercy is great. Accomplish in us the work of your salvation, that we may show forth your glory in the world. By the cross, the betrayal, and death of your son Jesus, bring us, through the community of the saints, to the joy of this resurrection. Amen. You are forgiven, and you may be seated.